Hello, and welcome to Brevity Code Podcast. My name is Ryan Hauser, and I'm here with Jeff Yokoyama, affectionately known as Yoki. Uh, before we get into our interview with Yoki today, um, if you'd like to subscribe to Brevity Code Podcast, um, please check out the brevitycode.com website or our Instagram, um, which is at brevitycode. And so let's jump in. Let's jump in. Today, we're going to be talking to uh, Yogi. Um, he's been an apparel industry pioneer uh, who's put forth such iconic and thoughtful brands as Maui and Sons, Pirate Surf, Modern Amusement, Generic Youth, and Pigeon One. Is it Pigeon One? Is that what you... Pigeon like, says pigeon orange. Pi- okay, pigeon orange. <laughs> and, pigeon and, then, orange. and then we'll get into sort of how Yoki Shop fits into all that. So, um, Yoki, thank you for being here today. Um, Thanks for having me. I yeah, appreciate man, it. One of my favorite humans and, and someone that I, I have a total warm affinity towards and just, just, a, just a good dude. And I'm stoked to have you on. Thank you. So, um, I, I think it would be probably most helpful if we just sort of took a stroll down memory lane and, and, and trace some of your, your heritage and ideology and contributions to the fashion industry and how you got into, I'm sure you probably don't even refer to it as that's not your profession by any means, but so, um, how did, how do you first come about even entering this space? We could go way back or we could go back to the start of um, Maui and Sons. Um, At that point, it was around 1978, and I was a hairdresser, and I was an assistant behind the styling director. And um, standing there with my arms behind my back and just with my mouth shut, um, I spent from 7 in the morning until about 7 at night observing how to cut hair, but also how to um, communicate with your customer and actually produce a product that people um, are happy with and that will be willing to pay for it. Um, So the opportunity was to to get to know these people since they were not my clients, but get to know what they do, what their names are, what the kids are, their names, how many kids they have, and what they what do they do? And um, I noticed that there was an abundance of kids that were surfing. There were abundance of kids getting into um, music. Abundance of uh, kids getting into like rockabilly hairstyles and things like that. So I just thought, you know what? How 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 can we participate in that world? And um, that's when I thought, why don't I do a clothing line and there was no necessarily thing like fashion or clothing line right so i decided to make a a logo and the logo was called maui and sons and um did did i hear the logo was derived from is sort of a graphic version of a chocolate chip cookie is there some truth to that there's a lot of truth to that. I didn't bring that up just now because it was, it's just another story. I, I, made some, <laughs> I made some cookies thinking that Grandma Maui Hawaiian-style cookies was going to be the name of it. And yes, the logo had the circle, triangle, rectangle, and square, which were like the chocolate chips. Sure. And um, unfortunate or maybe fortunate, we burnt the first batch and we decided we better <laughs> ch- ch- switch that out. So, so before we even go on, I, I, something that you said sort of strikes me as it, it, it's, I think you're taking something for granted that maybe most wouldn't. So you said when you were back, you know, being in, in the salon days and you're, you're clearly observing a lot of things happening, you know, you said um, that you sort of wanted to get to know this clientele. I think in today's world, people don't want to get to know each other. It's unless they can do something for each other. And I think you come at it from a very genuine place. Where does that come from? Hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, what you said is not necessarily normal. Like, (laughs) and and I mean that like in the best way it's, it's so where does that come from? You think? Well, again, it was out of resourceful 
resource or having no resources, we decided, um, or I decided that I needed to um, use the best things that are in me right now. And when I was growing up, we didn't have a whole lot of things. We, it, we, we just used the things that we had and made somewhat dreams out of the things that we had. So I'd, I'd play on the football field and, and pretend that, you know, I was a football player. And then I'd go to the beach and pretend I was like a surfer. And, um, you know, to, to have to go through that where it isn't instant, it, it was a development in my soul. And it was development in time and development in, in the, the way we did things. And so we, we did get a lot of... of um, of that, that one-on-one or that hands-on or that more personal touch throughout the years that I was growing up. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a perfect argument to never pick up an iPad ever, right? I mean, really, <laughs> so, so you're talking about a genuine human connection um, that I think gave you some special gift. And you really took to those emotions and to that, mental state and sort of channeled that into your creativity and into your craft. Mm-hmm. So let's get, so we'll just jump back. So now we, we've, we've burnt the batch of cookies Yeah. and how does that jump off into a, like, how does it go from a burnt cookie to a graphic? Like there, what, what's the, how's that come about? Well, you know, um, the name was Grandma Maui Hawaiian Style Cookies. Well, we just took Grandma's name off and then left the Maui in the middle and the cookies. And I thought Maui, 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 Maui and Sons. And I thought and Sons, so it looked like we were in business for a whole long time. And this was passed down to generation and I was the next torchbearers. And and it, it actually... Um, was really added to the story in that way where it was more of a family thing. So you sort of went like heritage, mm-hmm. but there was literally, there was, there was no heritage. Yeah. But, but I think, but it was, but it was genuine though. I mean, it was, it wasn't this, you know, phony facade. It was. Yeah, it was genuine. You know, it was it, genuine. And my dad was born and raised on Maui. Right. And my grandma, we did have a grandma Maui and. Um, she, to this day, we still have the recipes for those cookies. And I, you know, I, yeah, we could bust a move on that in any time. <laughs> and I think it would work. There was, you know, the Haleakala was the, the, the volcano and that would be the triple chocolate would cook the cookie in a cupcake pan, turn the cookie over. So it looked like a volcano, poke a hole in it and pour hot chocolate in there and serve it up with a scoop of vanilla ice cream. And have a cookie bar in Fashion Island. Yeah, why doesn't I mean, that exist? Why, why yeah. don't we do this? That's awesome. Right? <laughs> so yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of influence from the uh, from that island, Maui. And and you have this. Um, I don't know if it's your saying, but it's something I've heard you say, which is when you like to search for the warm water. Am I getting that right? Correct. Like yeah. Can you can you expand a little bit on that theory and talk us through that? Well, when I graduated high school. Um, Everyone was asking me, what college am I going to? And even back then, it was 1973, I looked at it and I said, I, I, um, I'm not necessarily geared for more schooling at this point. I wanted to see different things and I, want, I loved surfing. So I thought, how do I find warm water and somewhere where I could go to surf? And Hawaii came back into my mind and I said, well, let's go to Hawaii. And um, that's the simple way of looking at it, as I grew, warm water became more of a way of life and, and more of a um, a thing for me to follow. You know, if it didn't feel good, if it didn't feel like warm water, I was out. I bounced. I'd, I'd have to leave. It just It's not worth staying in ice cold water if you're not comfortable and not feeling it. So. Right. Do you feel like you still use that gauge in everything you do today? Is it still with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this feels like warm water to me. It's buddies talking. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. Great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, those, those are the kind of things I feel like 
it's just, it's such a cool metaphor or, or way of, you could use that as a way of life. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just a, a simple, mm-hmm. beautiful kind of thought that is sort of a true measure. Yeah. So thank you. So yeah, yeah man, I, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so, okay. So Maui and Sons starts as a t-shirt brand primarily. And then, so uh, I, I heard this story recently too about, um, tell us about your marketing strategy for, uh, for the brand and, and what you did with uh, a lack of budget. Well, uh, going back to actually being at the hair salon and being a assistant, I made $89 a week and we're like, oh shoot. And we're going to start a brand on $89 a week. So um, we did start this brand by making a T-shirt and taking the cookie logo and, and screen printing it onto a T-shirt. And um, we did some unusual things, but the thing that was in me also was to run up and down the Coast Highway. Now when I ran, though, I ran with the T-shirt on. And I ran specifically at 5 o'clock when it was like, fully packed in CDM and I'd run all the way down to um, (laughs) almost to what's that restaurant five crowns down there on that street and then turn around and run on the other side because it was just as packed and and cars would (laughs) 15 20 cars would honk hey man you know so it was we're like wow it's working you know people are digging it and so where, where were you selling at that point? Where, how did you get the brand off the ground? So, hmm. you know, for, for the entrepreneur that's listening out there, it's like, okay, burn a batch of cookies, turn it into a t-shirt graphic, ran up and down the coast. What? Like, yeah. how does this become this, the global sensation of a brand? And I know that that wasn't your, you know, the idea from the get-go was that it was going to be this massive success that it was and, and sort of touch a nerve on to, to so many people, whether you surfed or you didn't surf. But so where's the where's that tipping point of where it goes from mm-hmm. you running with your T-shirt on to, to create literal awareness to, you know, how did you get it in store and, and how did you fund your first production runs? And you do all those things that – when you're starting a business that are so challenging. So how did you do that? Well, we, um, we didn't know any better, so that was one mm-hmm. advantage. Mm-hmm. Second advantage was that we only had a certain amount of funds, and if I burnt the batch of cookies, we lost that fund, and it was like, okay, now we need to figure out how not to burn a batch of T-shirts, basically. So um, our first order was um, from a store called Hobie Sports in CDM. And um, they said, put it on consignment. And we kind of liked the idea, but put it on consignment. So what year was this, by the way? 1980. 1980, okay. So I had 12 T-shirts in my bedroom, and we'd trim all the threads and I mean you go through these things just because you're not because you're bored but because you don't know any better you just you want it to be perfect and you want it to you know shine when it gets there and so we took it into Hobie and I rode my bike there and I knew RB and uh, Mike there at that time and um, they they said okay well let's see that your brand, let's see your product. And I opened up the box and there was like two or three kids that were working there. And, um, they went, Oh my gosh, look at this new brand or new t-shirt. We pulled it out of the box and they, they claimed it. They pulled it, put it on and Done said, right then and there. Yeah. yeah I want we it. just went, wow, yeah. this is great. Yeah. So we ended up selling 12 t-shirts in, um, three days. They called for 24 more. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Husenstan from Newport Surf and Sport called for 200 T-shirts. Mm-hmm. So we gave the 24 to RB and uh, the additional 200 that we had left from the cut. And um, that, that, that's, <laughs> the rest is not history. <laughs> I mean, it just it took off and we were standing there going, we need to make more. And we had no idea how to make more in the time of the summer months, nor did we have necessarily the funds to 
back up another order that we got from from um, Paul. And but we asked Paul, "Hey, pay me," and he said, "Yeah, I'll do that," because it checked, it sold. Yeah. Clearly, you know, things the, the apparel industry is it doesn't work that way anymore. Uh, and I had similar, you know, where we would literally walk into a store and say, Hey, uh, can I talk to the buyer? And then the buyer would come out. You can't, there's no buyer in a store anymore. Like they, or they vanish or they say, I'm not here. Tell whoever that is. I don't want to see him. And you know, you got to go see him at a trade show. And then they say, Oh, come, come to my office. And it's this big chase and game. And I think that that, so for, there was a huge, obviously there was a huge, uh, you know, benefit of a different time, Right. And you had, uh, you know, a bit of, so luck and timing certainly comes into play. Did you have, um, the, how important was pro athletes and endorsements in, in 1980 for Maui and Sons? Did it matter? Obviously you, you started very grassroots, but you know, when I think of 1980, I think of like, you know, Tom Curran and, you know, Mark Acalupo and yeah. some of the, or he was even maybe a little later, later like 80, yeah. mid eighties. But did, did you get some guys just being in the surf shops and having awareness, some pros or some pro, you know, guys that were aspiring pros gravitate towards a brand and like, what impact did, did those guys have? If any, I'm just, I'm literally, I don't they know. Had, they have a huge impact, but we didn't have the infrastructure or the funding or the, the product to, to pass out. Every piece that we made, we had to sell so that we could recapture. I mean, we went from three months doing um, $30,000 in sales and, and then from six months, maybe close to 300000 And uh, yes, we did want to have sponsorships or pro athletes, but... Um, at that point, it wasn't it wasn't the deal for us. We wanted to create more of a, um, and I didn't know the term at that time, but it was lifestyle, you know, general market people that were just like, I go to the beach. I'm not a pro surfer. I'm not a pro volleyball player, but volleyball was on the rise, and so we participated with you know Andrew Smith or. Some kids sure. that, I mean, Andrew Smith was the first guy to be on the cover of GQ. And and he was wearing our stuff, not on the cover, but around the Palisades. And right. then all of a sudden the Palisades blew up. So we see the power of, of a, an athlete or a celebrity wearing your, your goods, but it's not like now the way it is. I mean, now you, you see it instantly and you go, oh, Kanye's got it, so I got to have it. Right, right, you know? right, right. And, um, and then they all say, hey, it's sold out, so you can't have it. You know? Do you feel like did, did the, the supply and demand come into play where, like you said, you rolled into Hobie with 12 shirts and a couple of these sales associates had them, you know, so now you're even down to a more limited quantity. It sells out and they can't get them because you're one guy. Right. Or you, you're one guy with a lack of cash to make the next run. Or, and then when those 200 sold, it's sort of like, oh, well, it's going to be six to eight weeks where I can even get back in. Do you feel like that sort of pent up demand also was a driver to Absolutely. your business? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. We didn't know it at the time, but as, as things would go on, we'd buy fabrics that were available. When we first started, I went to a fabric show, which I had no idea what the fabric what show fabric was. Show? And yeah. I walked in and there was a guy <laughs> that was selling Madras plaid. And I go, well, I want to buy some of this. And he goes, oh yeah, man. Um, it comes in from India and the X amount is the quantity that you have to buy. And here's the price on it. And you give us half right now and we'll order it up. Dumb as I am, I just went, here's half the money, and yes, we'll, we want want to order it. Well, the guy was based out in New York, and we would call him. His name was Wesley, and we hey, Wesley, did the fabric come in yet? No, they're shipping directly to your doorstep. And I said, all right, well, how do we do that? And how, Does it clear any customs or duties or what? He goes, we'll, we'll handle it all on our side. Well, like three months went by, and I was like, I think we... Just lost our yeah, deposit. We got taken. And then all of a sudden the door 
the UPS guy or whatever it was knocked on our door and we said, there's our rolls of fabric that we ordered, opened it up and absolutely freaked. It was like looking at gold. I right. mean, we were blown away. Right. And you purposed that. So the Malian Sons brand came to comprise, and as you said, kind of grew into lifestyle, right? <clears throat> was that tops, bottoms, primarily men's? Mm-hmm. Uh, like what well, were the it, categories? Well, the, the, the funny thing about it is, is that we, <laughs> we made things that we needed. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a sweatshirt, so we made a sweatshirt. Right. There, there wasn't a line plan, right? You didn't do like a no seasonal line plan. Line plan. No. Like we need. No. Yeah. It got cold, so we needed a sweatshirt. And then right. we said we needed more shorts, but we couldn't get back into the madras, so we bought solids and put comp stripes down it and put the patch on it, and they sold just as fast, if not faster. And then we said, well, shoot, we need a beach pant. And, you know, what's a beach pant look like? I don't know, but I remember Stussy at the time was coming out with a beach pant. His was twill. Ours was um, printed like a suede canvas of some sort. And it was printed with all our little sharks and elements and things yeah. on it. And yeah. it, it was just a real innocent time, too, for design. We didn't know it was going to the pink blue green and yellow was going to be the the thing right that and and so you you start selling <clears throat> locally and then you you obviously go nationwide and it was Maui and Sons a success overseas what was that did Japan pick it up first was that yeah, a, a UK play like what where did it go that really kind of put you on a global map Japan mostly Japan because Japan was just turning on to um how they could see California, you know? I mean, I, you remember that trend for them. They they wanted to have California on their, their shirts and they wanted to be beach. And California was a new frontier, basically. And they came and they, they went surfing at Topanga or Malibu, or, you know, or wherever, San Onofre. And um, they, they figured their way around. And um, when we started selling Japan... It was so California that they went nuts on it. They absolutely loved it because of the pink, blue, green, and yellow. And UK wasn't even a concern until maybe in 86. And that's when I went there on my own because I was, I just wanted to get away basically. And, um, I walked down King's road and that was the biggest eye opener for me. Completely and, different to what you oh were my, doing. Yes, completely. <laughs> the fan haircuts, these guys with pierced earrings and ears and nose and um, the Doc Martens and yeah. vests that would have patches all over it and yeah. they, they stunk. And I mean, just unbelievable. The it's, punk scene. Right. It, so it huge just, influence on you going forward. Yes. Right. Yes. So, okay. So, so Maui and Sons becomes this. Brand bigger than you ever had imagined. <laughs> like you said, you didn't even, you know, it wasn't a brand. It was this, just this creative outlet that, yeah. that turned into this thing. And um, so how does that story end? I mean, do you sell this thing, make a gazillion dollars and, you know, sail away? Or what, what happens to the brand in the, in the final stages? Um, it goes back to that warm water thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my partner, myself. And the artist Rick, um, it just it it's not that we were at each other's throat or anything. It was just after a while they had a different idea of what it should be, and that that's fine and dandy because it wasn't the same as what I thought. And so, main thing what I did it was I just um, pretty much packed up my goods and just said. Adios. I'm going Thank to search you. for warm water. I'm going to look for some warm water. <laughs> and and by doing that, um, they 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 knew me, and they knew that there was something wrong going on. But um, they had they they didn't have the imagination, and I I don't want to downgrade them 
because they were a huge part of our success. Rick and his artwork and, and um, Steve with his business sense, the way he ran business back then was, it was not nice. It was actually crazy, and, but it, it worked. Right. So not to downgrade anything that they did, but for me, I, I just knew that I had created something and I could do it again. And that's when I said, I, thank you very much. This was a great run. We had a good time. Right. And over the years, we made lots of money and stuff. And um, I thought at one time that I could walk on water, and it didn't work. <laughs> Turns out you can't. You can't. <laughs> you can't. So how long in between the Maui and Sons thing sort of coming to a close for you, do you engage with what becomes pirate surf? Yeah. It was about a year and one of the surfers that we sponsored, he was 14 when I first met him. He was now about 20, and his name was Mark Bellinger. And Mark, I looked at him and I said, hey, do you want to do something more for your demographic, more for your lifestyle and the way that you are? And he goes, yeah. And he was like smoking cloves. and <laughs> <laughs> He'd have funny, his hair looked like he had a wig on. And um, he was more a cross between Maui and Sons and the London punk scene. Right. And it met right in the middle. And all of a sudden, it's the year 1989, and Mark and I did this line called Pirate Surf, and um, grunge hit. And all our sound was so much like grunge. And... This is before Volcom was around and, um, you know, Nirvana, the dude, Kurt Cobain, wore one of our flannel shirts that we made. And that's a whole nother thing that just went crazy all of a sudden. And we made flannel shirts and we acid washed them and there was all sorts of difficulties, but we turned those difficulties or those problems into being the solution instead of being the problem. And if, if I could impress or tell anybody or talk with anybody is, is try to be part of the solution instead of the problem all the time. I mean, I, I looked at it and we, we sewed on the sleeves on the wrong arms. <laughs> and Mark looked at it and he says, let's cut off the, from here and cut off from here and just sew them on here and sew them on here. And now they're the right arms. They were the way they should be because the cuff at that time was up right. here, and then then we cut them off, and they were down here. And and then there was a situation where you you acid washed some tops, yeah. and they burned a hole through, and we burned and it, holes all over the the shirts. And we took them to the ones without the holes, and we separated them, and we took the good ones. We thought the good right, ones, the good ones, to Aaron at Huntington Surfing Sport, and Aaron. And his employees opened it up, and they started pulling through, and they sold all of them that night. And the thing that the actual workers said, we want the ones with the holes. And I said, well, shit, we got a whole bag of <laughs> yeah, holes. them. They're a mistake. But, and we took them up there, and he sold out. And Aaron Pye called me, and he goes, I think we got something here. So... So that's two situations now. The Maui and Sons burnt cookie turns into Maui and Sons graphic and does its thing. Now you've got, you know, an acid wash process gone wrong, holes burned in it, and that works. I'm. It's almost like it was supposed to be that way. You know, True. it's just something beautiful about the happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's a genuine thing, man. People make mistakes, right? And and right. You purposed both of those, you know, and parlayed those accidents into sort of signature pieces for your brand, really. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think that is a good lesson. I think um, what someone might consider an error, and we tend to, you know, tuck that away, turns out to be a showpiece. Right. Um, so, okay, so the Pirate Surf does its thing. You eventually sell to Quicksilver, that brand? Yeah. And how, so how long is that, that run at Pirate Surf? 
Um, it was a year in our garage, and I was cutting Danny Kwok's hair. And DK said, hey, Yoki McKnight wants to talk to you. Will you come up and meet with him? I said, sure. Went up there and talked with him. And after maybe an hour, we said, yeah, he wanted to buy our company. And I said, sure. I mean, and it wasn't, and no one was really thinking about anything, but hey, we like what you're doing. And I said, perfect. And, um, and reason why it was so easy, and it's not that it's my baby and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you're, you're giving up everything. And it's just the same feeling that I got. It was, um, at the beginning with Mark, it was warm water. It was so great. And mm -hmm. even, all the way through, it was warm water. But, you know, I thought to myself, we could do this again with something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's not that it's it, – we, we we don't want to say or sound like we're, we're just like everything we touch turns to gold or we're so really creative that we could do this. But if, if, you, if you stay current and you do the opposite – of what everyone else is doing, I think that's the secret. Because back when we did Maui and Sons, nobody was doing pink, blue, green, and yellow. It was all happy and sunshine. Yeah. And then as soon as we bounced from that, we went the opposite. And that was dark, and it was minor threat, and it was like GBH and guys smoking cloves. And it was pretty funny. But yeah. to me, I thought, well, let's try it. And now the next thing after that, after we worked with Quicksilver for a year, we realized that that was just um, a way of, of, you know, getting our idea and putting it into their brand and then getting us somewhat out of the way. So I said, well, that's okay. You guys want to play that way? That's okay. No problem. No harm, no foul. And so... We ended up making another brand called Modern Amusement, and it was quite the opposite because it was a kid's brand, and it was furniture. And everybody's, furniture? What do you know about furniture? And I said, I didn't know anything. But I did know that every Sunday and every Saturday there was some garage sales or the Rose Bowl or Long Beach or Santa Monica or somewhere where I could just go thrifting. And um, thrifting all of a sudden became like, the next thing, <laughs> we and we didn't necessarily plan that, but on we had a little store down on Lido Island, and every Monday there was a line out the door of women wanting to see what Yoki picked up, and it was all peely, crackly paint, white paint all over everything, so you could go to these garage sales and see furniture, and you just bring it in and. Get literally get a chain and hit the top of it and, and then paint it and then sand some of it off and then like make sure the legs are sturdy enough and the drawers worked and you put little nice paper in the drawers and then you sell that thing for six hundred bucks right. after you bought it for twenty five. Right. And people were going, Yes, we need to decorate our house that way. And the demographic was there. There was a ton of people wanting kids' clothes now at that point. And we made little flannel shirts for kids that were this big, and we made shorts, and it was a fun time. And then the brand went from there to your shop on 17th, which was sort of a, a full line of sort of irreverent apparel. I, I feel like it was kind of the same approach that you just said with your furniture. You would – it wasn't – it wasn't the norm. And I, there's this Mark Twain quote. I might not get it exactly right, but it's sort of like when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to stop and think. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, like right? That. Yeah. It's something to the effect yeah. of that. Um, and I I think that's a, a very telling point. And when I think about you talking about the, you know, the evolution of modern amusement, I mean, you went from – you really did sort of the inverse action. You went from apparel to – thrift shop, you know, furniture to kind of putting your, your spin on it to then instead of parlaying your other two businesses, which were hugely successful and you had a following and you had demographics. So what's Yoki going to do next? You go, I'm going to do kid stuff. Mm. I'm going to make furniture. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, that, but that's, 
that's the warm water, right? That's, that's not, that's you're it. not, um, there's because no contrived chasing, leveraging. No. You're just doing yoki. You're yeah. just, it's what felt good in your heart Absolutely. to do. And I think that's why you continue, you know, a long string of success and, and if nothing else, a ton of fucking respect out there. Oh, thank you. So, so there's Modern Amusement. So that obviously, now there was Modern Amusement store, freestanding stores here and in Japan as yeah. well? The idea with our store was um, not to see if we could do a store. It was like I was there anyways, and, and we were we were only selling modern amusement men's and women's in Japan, in Tokyo, to two distributors. And um, the American market I didn't even pay attention to because I didn't think it was valid at that time. I, and no offense to anybody, but it just wasn't where I wanted to go. So by being in Japan only, we had two distributors and it was the start of building um, programs and packages. And I wasn't quite sure on how to do that, but I, I knew that if I could get the money from these guys for deposit on their order and send that money to our factory so that they would get going with the product and then that would buy the product and we would be able to drop ship over here, that means I wouldn't have to do the manufacturing necessarily myself and screw it up. And, I mean, it was a beautiful situation because we didn't even touch money. It was all bank and transfers, and and we built it to about a $5 million concern over in Japan alone. And we're just like, wow. Yeah, and fantastic. so we opened up our small little store in Newport Beach, mm -hmm. Because we were there, not because I wanted to show everybody that we could do a store. It's just um, they were all coming in, and they would go through our warehouse and buy stuff. And I just said, "Forget this. Let's just do a store." Well, again, this this goes back to the lo-fi philosophy that you we were talking about earlier too. You had your store. And, you know, there was no social media then. There was no hmm. – you didn't advertise this thing. It was a storefront, I think, with a little sign out in the front. Mm -hmm. and it was kind of this little house off the, off the side of 17th Street. And it's sort of this um, element of discovery. Correct. And sort of if you were in on the secret, you could wear it. And it was – and it wasn't that you were being exclusionary. It's just hmm. – it was a groundswell of, I think, the right – it's what every marketer wants, which is that influential tastemaker type audience. And you did it by literally sit sitting back and virtually doing nothing to actively promote your brand. Correct. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people lose sight of now <laughs> with yeah. I gotta buy followers and I gotta do a post a day or I'm gonna be irrelevant. And you just it's sort of the if you build it, they will come. And I think you also you had a ton of patience because again, you weren't, this wasn't the, I'm going to have this global brand and it's going to be, we're going to project out four years and be doing $50 million. I don't, you know, that's not the sense I get. Yeah. I don't even know how to do that. So it's, <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense anyways. So, but yeah, that, that is, um, and it's not, meant to say that this is the way to go it's it's meant to say this is the way we went we we not that we didn't know better at that time we just knew that if we could withstand the drought mm -hmm. and the slow times and conserve on our money on at home and at business then we'd be okay i mean, we have four kids we raised our four kids in a place half this size and Yet, you know, my wife, Colleen, we, again, we've been married for 28 years and she's put up with a lot of, lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she, um, she's great. Now she says it to me, you know, that I wouldn't change a thing. I no, wouldn't either. No way. There's no way. There's no way. This is what made us who we are. We get, I surfed this morning. I surfed yesterday morning. We walk right outside our door and, um, we actually have a dog now. I mean, it's like, it's the craziest thing in the world. But, you know, the the idea of selling to a market that actually wants the product was the the, the overall theme. And um, 
I do place themes in every one of my businesses of where where it is. The warm water was heavily the theme in Maui and Sons. The the theme in in Pirate Surf was um, is replace and become that theme, and the modern amusement was making amusement in a modern world, and the theme and in I when you put these things on me that me to be the the governor of the theme then it i re, i live and die by this stuff you know making amusement in a modern world in the modern mid-century modern everybody talked about that and they all thought it was eichler and then ames and, right. and so on so on so right. and so i thought anything's a modern amusement what what isn't a mod, a roller coaster ride's a modern amusement you know to me just like that's a great explanation. I never heard that on yeah. behalf of the brand. Yeah. Um, and I think, so all of those things, I think are an evolution and a buildup to what you're doing now. Um, mm. So I had the, the, you know, the pleasure to go see you the other day and, and went into your, your store slash that's, so you actually are, you do all the cut and sew out of there and it's a retail shop, right? It's, it's Correct. sort of all yeah. one. And for those of you who you know live in Southern California, I highly recommend a visit to Yoki Shop on PCH, kind of next to Amari's down there. I wasn't, I wasn't. I guess I'm just conti- conditioned like everyone else is to a a, t- a typical retail experience where you sort of come in, and it's you know an open air shop, and you know there's maybe nesting tables and such. And I guess I was, for some reason, thinking I was going to get that experience when I went to visit Yoki, and I swung open the door and I literally <laughs> almost fell over his desk, which was two feet from the door. And there he is smiling, greeting. And I think just as we opened this podcast, when he was talking about, you know, or when you were talking about, you know, um, the customer experience that you wanted to get to know, there was no way anyone's going to get by you literally in your store without saying hi and you greeting them, which mm-hmm. I, I, I assume is your intent. Or either that, or it's it's just some subconscious layer of you know that you. <laughs> I, it's all of that, it, but at the same time, that's the space that w- we were given. I mean, the warehouse is six or seven hundred square feet. The the room that w- you where my desk is, we figured that's where the people can pay for <laughs> their product. Right, right, you guys got to see this. What we're talking about. Yeah. So when you when you go in the store, it's it's to me it's. Um, the way it's designed, um, I feel like I'm either I'm I'm two things. I'm inside your living room and I'm inside your head. It's kind of the Correct. way I you know. Yeah. There's surfboards. There's art. There's great music being curated. Every song and there's just just you know a a bit of randomness here and there. And there's whistles hanging from the ceiling. And there's there's a Nike shoebox wall that I would love for you to give some some deeper uh, color on because I just thought like. Wow, there's no other sort of word than that. But what can you just take us through, like what what that is, why you did it, and what you said the other day was sort of your master plan with it? Because I think it's just yeah, really our, our store is a hodgepodge of probably thirty or forty years worth of being in this industry, and um, the things that drive me now is um, design, make, and sell different. So those three things are the things that are in front of me for the last 10 years. And the reason for that is because I was um, disgusted the way that I was 10 years ago when I worked at, um, when we sold Modern Amusement up to a company. And I worked at that company and I just, I didn't like the way it, it was. And so... Um, my analogy there was not warm water necessarily. It was I'm never going to drive on the 405, and it, <laughs> yeah, that was the best thing that I've ever done in the last ten years. And because if the 405 is stopped, you're stopped. If the 405 is moving, you're moving. If the 405 is stop and go, you're stop and go. I figure I'd rather see the side streets where I could stop at a red light, but I could also just like cruise around on roads that are less traveled. And I could still get to LA in the same amount of time. 
So that was an experiment that I did, and I did do that, and I drove side streets, and I got to L.A. at about the same time. And then um, I took it more to heart. I said, you know what, There's the 405 is not necessarily just a freeway. The 405 is life. And I'm never going to live my life like that where somebody could tell me you're, you're going to sit as, like it's a parking lot or you're going to have to do stop and go. And, and, and this is my life. So it was now a whole life-changing thing, you know, because it, it – and so along with that came design, make, and sell different. So design, I used to design like everyone else. I, I was pretty good on, on Illustrator and Photoshop, and, um, but it was all copy and paste. It was all rehash. It was all like, um, even if the silhouette that you might have designed, as me as a designer, doing that work the way we do it computerized, it's the same thing. It's copy and paste. Even if the silhouette changed and it was long and skinny, my my block that I had or my was square and boxy. Yeah. And and it doesn't it so it's just a template. Yeah. You're the not, templates were not doing that anymore. Yeah. So um design f- was changing also in the design world. And there were so many more creative kids that were being pushed into being technicians because these companies would hire them and say, okay, we need you to haul ass and put out a 50-piece line. And it was copy and paste and drag in place and just send up into the merchandisers. And then the merchandisers would look at it and say, we need to take that button off because it's going to be a savings of 15 cents. And we're going to use inferior construction and inferior fabrics and inferior factories but we'll land it duty paid at right. the price that everybody right. wants it to be at. Well, it's a ludicrous game. It's yeah, a crazy it, game. None of that makes sense. And it yet doesn't. there's thousands of companies still doing that, that subscribe to what you just said as the way that they design, market, and manufacture products. Mm-hmm. Bottom line driven, make stuff right. to make stuff, right. to maintain sales. They think that increasing the amount of things they make is going to increase sales. Yeah. Instead of focusing on design and going back to the basics, like you've done successfully throughout. So okay, so that so. <laughs> Thank so you. yeah, I don't want to get. This is not a. Not, a, I'm not a trying bashing. to pick bones yeah. with anyone here. Just stating. Yeah. My twenty years and in your exactly. lineage yeah. of this, you know, we know a thing or two about the the cycle that the game is in, and certainly out there, we're seeing the effects. I think of complete restructure of the way things are going to be thought about Mm -hmm. in the future as far as apparel goes. So, but back to your, so design different, make different, different. sell different. Okay. Make is, um, make is honest to goodness, make it here in the United States, but also make it by your hand. And, and so that it, it becomes part of your design, but make, Make from things that are already here, too, because there's an abundance of things. You know, there's an example where we worked with Levi's on, um, we made a a pant for them um, out of a 501 that was being thrown away. And we always asked Levi's, not always, but we asked Levi's, why is it that you don't recapture all these pants that are out there and you make some money off of the pants that you have. Yeah, this is Levi's. This is Levi's. Like, think of the volume that's happening there. So um, we also presented a Japanese word to them called multi-nai. And multi-nai, our definition is to use the whole fish. So if you're going to throw that pant away, I'm going to take that pant and disassemble everything. I mean, there's rivets on there that they don't have to remake. There's button flies, there's tack buttons, there's the two famous back pockets right. with the one red tab. 
And we did that and took the waistbands off. And then in my little shop, we made a pattern off of the 511s that I wear. And we reassembled all those parts onto a new 511 body that was made by us and showed Levi's that we could work in collaboration. You have your patterns, you have your sewers, you have everybody up there. But what we don't want to do is reproduce the tack buttons because they're already on the pant that was being thrown away right. or the belt loops. And when we put that pant together, they said you hit, you hit every one of our maxims, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Every single thing that we talk about daily is how do we do this? And on top of that, you're bringing us newfound money from things that are being thrown away. So um, they haven't done anything with it as of yet, but um, we have. We made 12 pairs and we sold 10 of them, and I have two more left that, that I'm not going to sell. And we sold them for like 265 Yeah, I'm sure it's got to just go through the Levi red tape you know, the beast that is Levi, but I, I'm sure they, because that's going to check every box from a, if you're in the sales department there, if you're in the marketing department, if you're mm-hmm. in, you know, a C-suite position there, you're going to look at that and say, yeah, you're right. Um, this is the feel good that we've been waiting for. So it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, it is. It is the warm water for them. <laughs> so from there, you, you also have this new program going with universities. I want to just spend a minute on, um, can you tell us a little bit about that? It's called Yoki's Garden, and garden stands for gather, abundance, repurpose, demonstrate, ethos. Ethos is a Greek word meaning doing the right thing. At least that's our definition. And when do we want to do this? We want to do it now. So it's, And then when you do take the garden and you build a garden on campus, um, it's not literally where you put a bunch of seeds in the ground and you water it, but it is the same principle. It's the same concept. You got to start somewhere. And if you could gather the abundance and repurpose that abundance into new things, demonstrate to them how you could do this and do the right thing. And when, when, then in turn, you will build a sustainable business. And why we say sustainable business is because there's 30,000 kids on campus, 18 to 22. Every company in the world, Chanel, Apple, um, Google, uh, Chevrolet, Allstate, wants this demographic. We are making things of out of their uniforms or their coaches' uniforms or the sorority t-shirts and putting it in a new spin, cutting it, making it, designing it, creating it, and then selling it back to the 30,000 market that is 18 to 22. We don't have to guess on what fabric we're going to use. We don't have to guess what color they want. We don't have to guess necessarily what size they want. And that is also a big part of our design different because not only are you designing for the future, but you're designing to specifically to a market that's standing there for four years. Pack Sunwear can't get this market. It's true. All at one time to come in and say, I love Cardinal and gold and you have the Cardinal and gold. They can't do that. And beyond that with a four year degree, you have an affinity for your school. Everyone rocks the alumni license plate when you graduate from college. You do it for a year and then you realize like, oh, okay, I don't don't need to be that guy. (laughs) But you do it for a year because you're like, okay, that was, I did something and I want people to know about it. But I I think, um, you know, it's interesting as I'm listening to you when you, when you take, when you recount each brand, there's, there's been sort of a youth movement that you've been able to impart in sort of put it in a, in a capsule, like, you, you know, mm-hmm. each, each one's kind of had this moment in time. And I think this next one, I mean, you're literally talking about items that there's no 
carbon footprint. Right. Right. You're talking about buying, going back to your thrift shop days and buying things and but repurposing garments that were made for the landfills and putting collegiate program logos on them, selling them at a premium. So you're you talk about checking the boxes. I mean you're there's no carbon footprint. You're 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 maxing out at retail. You're talking about brand affinity. You're talking about tapping into you know school pride. You're talking about great environmental feel goods. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, there's a lot. There's I mean, lot. It, 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 there's probably there's more that I'm not even <laughs> thinking about right now. But that seems to be sort of a masterstroke to me, and a program that is. Relatable in every major university. Absolutely. You know. Today we just um, finished um, building our contract with Modern Day. And Modern Day has the abundance also. And they have a following and they have superstar teams and superstar students. And um, we hope that we could um, cross the borders from sports to academia, where the marketing classes on campus there can actually do the marketing and, and present it to the United States, at least that they're one of the first in the nation to start taking responsibility of some of the things they're throwing away. And at the same time, we could get the Marshall School of Business at USC to write some business plans about this new business model and, um, you know, hopefully we could have Roski School of, of Design um, participate in designing and sustainable classes have something they could talk about that is active on their right. campus. Right, it's actually happening. Yeah, somewhere some in, theoretical yeah. thing or, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. This has been awesome. But I do want to talk quickly about the Nike wall and <laughs> because we're talking about kids and we're talking about, um, youth movements, and we're talking about inspiring and educating. And I think what you had told me when I went to visit you was was really worth sharing. What's happening? So what what's going on with the Nike Wall in your store? And what what is it? So because if you've never been there, you you describe um, the visual. There's about um, 600 boxes um, I collected in one month, and um, I collected them from the U- University of Southern California, USC. And, and the problem with that is that the university can't give the athlete the shoe in the box because they're afraid of all sorts of different liabilities. They might go out and try to sell it or, you know, be on the side of the street, you know, pawning it sure. off. And so, um, so they give the athletes the shoe and then they crush the box. And if this is happening at SC, it's happening at UCLA, it's happening at Stanford, it's happening at Cal. To me, it's like the Campbell Soup thing. It's one of the most recognizable boxes in the world. And the only difference that we do is that we show none of the logos when we put it up on the wall, except for one box is turned upside down with the logo facing out to show you that... um, if you ever see something that we make where maybe with the Levi pocket, we turn the, the left pocket upside down, um, we feel that hopefully one day people will look and go, uh, those logos that are upside down came from this little brand called Yoki Shop or Yoki's Garden. And um, it's, their, it's their sign of saying these products that are on this pant or on the wall of Nike shoe boxes were once destined for a landfill. And if we could just convey that to everybody that walks in, everybody that walks in stands there and they love the orange wall, but and they take pictures in front of it and they ask the same question and I give them the same answer that these were destined for a landfill. Yeah. And um a museum of modern art walked in and they want us to do an installation of 10,000 shoe boxes and put a $50,000 one year scholarship to USC inside one of the boxes and then auction the art piece off box by box 
and number each one so that whoever has number four, five, six, seven out of the 10,000 boxes, they win a chance to, or they have a chance to win a scholarship. And it's just, you, when you talk about the youth or you talk about innovation, innovation and youth, and um, you hear it all day long in design rooms and you hear it all day long in, in people and it's an innovative whatever. People need to put their own definition to what innovation is. It's not necessarily a brand new zipper that it you know won't let any water in. I I guess that's innovation. That's cool. But to me, innovation is what are we going to do with some of these boxes that we have, and how can we we can make a difference by just showing example of one thing like a wall. And um, you know, Nike's all been in our shop and. They they enjoy the humor and they they they're listening. I know yeah, they so are. Where, where's the Nike marketing department on this one? Are they uh, <laughs> this is this is a, a fantastic idea that's a feel good for them too. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't stem from them. And that's almost more genuine that it wasn't. It's not going to come off like a scheme. Yeah. Like a because it's probably hard for them to do anything with a. A positive spin because people are going to look at it and say, "Oh, they're just—they're so damn big. It's just a power grab, and they're trying to, yeah. you know, don't look at our factory in Bangladesh. Look over here. Yeah, you know. So they're—they're they're in a tough spot. Um, but it, you know, maybe it takes a guy like you that can reflect the mirror back to them as a consumer True. and say, yeah. "Look at what you can do with mm-hmm. this." And yeah, you, know, you could say the Hopefully. same. For- Hopefully, you know, it will um, at least turn on a light switch, you know. Somebody will look at it and go, wow, there's an idea. There's a good idea. Look, I just, yeah, look, man, I don't want to belabor it, but to me, it's, that's a genuine, that's, that's like a movement. Like, sponsoring another athlete or another whatever, tennis tournament or whatever, <laughs> billboard, that's this, not this it. This will resonate with the youth market. Th- that's what I'm saying. And when we we use those terms, replace and become, or go the opposite, this is the opposite direction yeah. that Nike would have taken. And by us doing it and showing example and putting definition to these words, sustainability or repurposing right. or demonstrating how to do it, um, right? Then they. Well, maybe sooner than later, hopefully, that they, you know, the people, it's not just them. It's it's our nation. You know, we, we, we do a, a lot of things with other companies right now in hopes that, um, you know, it, it, it broadens the awareness, but it also opens up um, um, the thinking of other people, creativity. Yeah, I sure hope so. And I think you're a guy that's, you know, the perfect ambassador for that movement because <laughs> you're not looking for glory. You're just doing what feels intuitively yeah. right, and yeah. you're looking for that warm water. That's right. So I'm sorry for my cell phone. This is a podcast. Shit happens. Um, <laughs> you know, but we're not perfect. Um, I, listen, I think we we have um, really – it's been a pleasure for me to really get to, to talk to you in some more detail and some depth. Um, well, and, you. you know, hopefully those that are, are listening or, or watching have, you know, gotten some little nuggets that they can take away. So um, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you. And it, it, is there any way that um, the people, do you, do you care about social media following and does it can, should they come to your shop? You want to give them the address? You want to give them your Instagram? Like, how do you how do you roll your social media? I, I you know, how do you? Our, our do you Instagram is uh, is Yoki Shop, and you'll find us there. And um, it's kind of corny, but that's the humorous part, and that's the fun part about our brand. Um, we don't take it too serious. We don't necessarily um, try to um, make make anything but just awareness of what we are doing and how we're doing. Um, and then if you want to come to our store, our store is at 2429 West Coast Highway, Unit 103, 
and it's in Newport Beach. And the zip code is 92663. So um, I'm there from 8 in the morning till 5 on Monday through Friday. And then you'll see me on Saturday from 10 to 4. So I work because I love it. And um, I don't even think it's work. I mean, doing things like this, this is, this is part of our whole little thing. Um, we enjoy um, opening up and, and at least giving a little bit of what we do. And um, hopefully it will spark some ideas in everyone else's business or in their creativity or their artwork or things that they do. Yeah, guys, let's go if you, if you get a chance, go see Yoki at, at Yoki Shop. It's <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, thank you for joining us on another episode of the Brevity Code podcast, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Awesome.